This is Omo. 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 Is this Yoko Omo? This is Omo. Welcome, 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 crew. You're listening to Omo, the romance and reality of violin making. We are back with part two of, what are we doing here, Brandon? This is identification, and this part two is the tools and resources that we use. Wonderful. Uh, I am loving nerding out on this, getting into all the minutiae of how you find out a violin was made 150 years ago in this region of Germany with these hands. How do you find this stuff out? These people know. It's magic. Pure magic. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we're recording right at the beginning of June. And Brandon, you and I were just talking about, I didn't introduce myself. I'm Rosie DeLoach. Hi, Rosie. (laughs) I'm here with Brandon Godman. Hi. Hi. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We were, um, this is perfect because we were just talking about how June at the end of May, early June is insane for all of us. Oh my goodness. We're all working ourselves crazy, especially if any of us have uh, rental fleets going on at the shop. It's turn-in season. It's uh, buy an instrument season. It's order all the inventory for fall season. It's go to all the string drives. It's explore the limits of your credit card season. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I have done this. (laughs) And Brandon, you just got back from a trip to Learning Trade Secrets. Yes. Our editor, Jason Peoples. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, Jason and I, well, we've never met in person. We've talked. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I got to hang out with Jason. He's awesome. Uh, Big fan of Jason Peoples. And yeah, we got to hang out in Ashland, Ohio with uh, Tom Crowen, who's a fantastic violin maker who actually spent a large amount of time of his life in the Bay Area. Um, But recently... I think about four years ago, moved up to Eugene, Oregon, and we geeked out, talk about geeking out on advanced setup techniques. So Mm -hmm. the whole week was really about fingerboards, sound posts, and bridges. I learned so much about bridges in that class. Oh my gosh. Yeah. We spent two days cutting bridges. We broke it down and, uh, we had three different groups and we each kind of cut bridges differently, played the instruments made adjustments, played the instruments again, made adjustments, and then heard them for the final time and kind of collected notes on what those changes meant. And Mm -hmm. I was the one who got to play every instrument. So it was just, it was amazing. It was exhausting, but amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. And let's talk about our love for the Moors. Oh yeah. Rodney and Kate. And Anne. Yes. Anne is the backbone of that whole place. And yeah. She emails us. She, you know, she keeps everyone in shape. But man, their place is just paradise, isn't it? I can't wait to go again. Uh, I'm going to go. What am I going to do? Oh, yeah. It's a class on uh, making. (laughs) Yep. <laughs> and I don't, I, I really have lost my brain uh, <laughs> this time of year. I, uh, this time of year, we just went through at my shop with a staff of five people. We 
uh, did nine string drives in two weeks and kept the shop open. And wow. so, um, yeah, I, I just did my last string drive, which was really fun. It's always the same school. It's Jackson over in Garland ISD. And it's always the very last drive of the year. I know it's summer when I've done that and I see the same teachers and I see the same vendors from other schools and we're all, we've all got our like lingo down about how we market our shop. <laughs> like, I do this or I offer this one flat fee and I'm locally owned and that's why you want to work with me. And I, we've <laughs> like, I got it all differentiated out and uh, I can tell looking around at all the shops, we all are so tired, but it's, it's an exciting time because like the shops are hopping, people are coming to bring money. So yeah. it's, it's not all bad, but yeah, if I'm not putting sentences together, that's why. <laughs> well, I, I think you're always fantastic. And, oh, thank you. <laughs> um, I do have a question. Does yeah. your pink hair give you an edge at those string drives? The pink hair or the tattoos or, or maybe, I, I don't know. <laughs> I bet it um, does. I, I would like to think that it's the fact that I I am the business owner who's there. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm I'm really proud of what I've put together. Yeah. Um I, You're passionate. I'm there. Yeah, I'm not I'm not thinking about my hair or yeah, I'm just thinking about like how do I help you understand that I'm really proud of what we offer? Yeah. How do I get that across to you? So matchmakers. We're all matchmakers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Well, so that's how you know it's summer. Mm -hmm. I know it's summer when I feel comfortable breaking out my summer shirt that has bananas on it. You are the banana man right now. <laughs> I am the banana man. It's yes. all black, bright yellow bananas. Have you slipped and fallen on yourself today? <laughs> no, I haven't. But I'll tell you what, I'm bananas about this shirt. <laughs> good for you <laughs> you know the more white hair i get actually the more on my game i am with my dad jokes yeah and it's sometimes i make myself blush <laughs> it's it's working its way through your dna <laughs> yes it is oh well we actually have a show today we uh you have mentioned tools and resources so we have got another group of three we've asked them about what do you go to when you're trying to do identification? What do you use? What's in your hands? Who do you call? Uh, so we've got, again, three guests. Uh, you want to start us off, Brandon? Yeah, we are really thrilled to bring on Claire Givens of Claire Givens Violins um, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Claire, some of you may know her from the VSA, Um the average person in the United States who has nothing to do with violins will have seen her on Antiques Roadshow. Mm -hmm. um, and Claire is just fantastic. Absolutely. Uh, returning, we have Ben Hebert coming over from Oxford, England. Uh, he tells us a little bit about almost setting an instrument on fire using one of his tools. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's exciting. Um, and then we also have Chris Rooning returning with us from Boston, Massachusetts. Yeah. And so, all three of these folks have so much to say about their tools and resources. Yeah. You know, I was excited about this because Claire has always been the epitome of a librarian to me. And 
I love talking with her about books. If I ever have a question about what book should I go to? Um, but I recently acquired uh, the library from David Stone's estate up in Seattle. So it's, you know, I think it was somewhere around 1,500 pounds worth of books. It's a lot. But I wanted to call Claire and just be like, Claire, how do I drive this thing? You know, I've got this like (laughs) new tool. How the heck do I work it? You know? Yeah. How do you use it for your skill set? Yeah. It's just a lot. it's, It's a lot to process when you're presented with all of this information, you know? Yeah. And she was really fun. We, nowadays in our program, we can actually see each other. We couldn't do that early days when we were doing OMO, but uh, we could watch Claire and she came to us from her library, just filled with books all behind her. And she kept getting up and walking <laughs> away from the mic to go grab another book. <laughs> it was awesome. It was yeah. so much fun. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know everyone's going to enjoy this. Guys, stay tuned. After the break, we bring you part two tools and resources. Hey, Bench Monkeys. Inevitably, all of us in this field, we end up in the business of trading and selling among one another. How many times has this happened to you? Your colleague has acquired a library of violin trade books they're trying to sell, and they're texting you and your friends all across the country to try to find someone who's interested. Or you've got a specialty item for the industry, but you had to buy it in bulk. And now you're looking for 25 people to split it with. Or you made a righteous batch of varnish that needs distributing. Well, our friends over at Handcrafted are making all of this easier for us. Luthiers can now create their own online stores for selling those specialty items that are made just for us. Handcrafted Marketplace is making it easier than ever for us to showcase the instruments we make and to buy and sell the tools and materials that we need to do our jobs well. Downsize your Tonewood collection or sell a few unused books, start selling your freshly finished instruments or offload some instruments that aren't right for your market. No need to wait. Handcrafted is live to the public right now. So get in on the ground floor by creating your store today. For more information about how you can start selling on Handcrafted, go to handcrafted.market slash OMO. Again, that's handcrafted.market slash OMO. Handcrafted Marketplace. Buy luthiers for luthiers. Well, guys, you've heard him many times on OMO, and we can't get enough of him on this ID episode once again. Can't get rid of him. (laughs) Once again, Ben Hebert. Hey, what are your hello? What are hello? (laughs) What are your thoughts on you're only as good as your library, and what can you tell us about yours? Ah, what can I tell you about my library? Uh, gosh, that's that's a difficult. (laughs) You you just pulled out a book from behind you. It's not a violin book, but it's a. 1585 history of Cremona you just had behind your head so let's start there well that's really cool because it's got the same the same fonts as uh so I've got uh Cremona Bella Serenissima Citadella whatever which is by and uh it's it's lovely because it's it's got the same fonts that the Amati use for their for their labels and Hmm. actually the, the the mysterious star which you see on the Messiah I've discovered from picking up that book 
that it's actually a piece of type font from from the Kremlin's uh, from the Kremlin's press, and that's gone and made me look again at labels. And I can tell you that Stradivari, all well, certainly Stradivari, not so much the Amatis, uh, they owned bits of the press and they made up their own labels. They, they made their own type to make the labels. So yeah, it's a, it's a cool cool thing to have and yeah you've heard that on omo first uh, that's fantastic uh, wow. but i uh yeah so my library goes back to 1585 which is kind of cool and uh but but how does that help me with violins <laughs> <laughs> do you have any thoughts on this phrase you're only as good as your library uh i think I increasingly hate libraries. <laughs> uh, Go on. I've, I, you know, I'm, I'm constantly, yeah, resourcing stuff and so forth. But, uh, but the more and more that I'm, that, that we're confronted by uh, photographs, the more, the more it becomes apparent to me that, I mean, when, when I started in the 1990s, the number of color photographs that we had of instruments was, was minuscule. And therefore, we had to be much more tangible with the instruments in order to figure out what, you know, what they are as three-dimensional objects. And as we've got to a point in the last 10 years, 20 years, where there are thousands and thousands and thousands of photographs, we're seeing the instruments in two dimensions. But over and over and over again, I'm finding that those, you know, reliance on two dimensions ends up with flawed decisions and and you know f- flawed assumptions of what things look like and uh both in terms of expertise in in the way that people are uh, making decisions but also similarly in the way that some violin makers are producing stuff because there's just not enough context to make to to, to be familiar with the instruments which which we're looking at. So I love my library. I don't hate it, <laughs> but it's very, it's very much to me. It's, you know, every time I get a book, I go through it. I try to remember everything that's there, but I'm looking at it as an aid memoir and then trying from there to go out and see the examples in the round, which, which relate to what I'm seeing. Another problem with the libraries is that you've only got so many examples of something, and if you've got makers which are quite of quite have quite a range, then it can be, you know, things can look outside of the published examples, and and still be right, or or vice versa. You can have, you know, a, a range in books which might not quite represent what you're looking at. Yeah. And then you also run into the issue of some of the published examples not being correct or have now been disproven, right? That's an issue too. There are, there are certain, there are certain uh, dark wormholes that we can go down. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I feel like every time there's a conversation with an expert and they say, oh, well, of course, you know, these examples aren't correct in this book. I just want to grab a piece of paper and go like put a big slash through it or something. But um, it's impossible to remember that stuff too sometimes. 
Well, we have things like uh, there was a big dealer in the interwar period, uh, Emil Herman, and what we understand with him is that he took all the, you know, he he bought as many testorias as he could, and he decided on a grading system of uh, of testorias from good to bad. And so he'd take the labels out and re rejiggle the labels until until the instruments were you know could be sold in in particular ways. Uh, there's wow, and Galliano's again. You know, there's a huge issue with labels. Clots is, uh, you know, if if you've got an agidious clots and you want to prove that it's right, it's an absolute nightmare because of the way that these labels have been moved around. So, so yeah, I talk about black holes and without indicting anybody who's, uh, who's living still, uh, you, you would have thought that you would be able to reliably tell the difference between Matthias and an agidious clots or, a you know, or, or Niccolo the first and Niccolo the second Galliano. But but these are tough. These, these these are really really difficult. And and actually, photographic libraries at the moment are just feeding that misinformation because mm. they because they're not able to be definitive. What are some other like a lot of people have a library of books or photo archives? Do you collect anything else that might be helpful in identification, like examples? When I can, I. I'm I've got a, I'm terrible at buying things which are never going to get sold, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I just think you know there's there's a real there's a real virtue you know just having great examples of things to look at and you know to to just always keep stuff ar- around which which you can absorb mm-hmm. and. Uh, so that so that things because otherwise things just become uh sort of hypothetical and, and and distant so you know i'm i mean i'm i'm absolutely blessed because i've got the ashmolean 400 meters down the road but uh but i'm also blessed because i've got an andrea marty bits which knock around the workshop for example and that's that's a great sort of point to to do stuff but i i think constantly asking questions what what i what i love is that people will come in with an instrument and i can pull instruments off the shelves to show and disprove what they're what they're looking at and you know to and and that's always that's always very helpful all of that stuff is constant learning it's not just showing off yeah i did a lot of wholesale and i was in jay ifshan's shop and i was showing him a bow and he went into his office and brought back a little handheld black light. And he said, mm-hmm. well, you've actually got a crack in the head. Uh, and I was like, oh, dang, I didn't see that. And he handed me the black light and he said, here, this will save you a lot of money in the future. Just carry this around yeah. with you, you know. Um, do you use any tools like that? Um, or even just looking at them under different light sources or taking photos on certain cameras just to analyze an instrument differently? I bought the Lumatech torch, which is it's a lightsaber. It's uh, it's about three four thousand dollars, and uh, the 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 bottom part of it, it's actually got its own fan, and it's got the same battery power as a taser. <laughs> and 
and you can slice Luke ears in half. So warning about this, I had uh, I had somebody and they it was a bizarre thing and they had a violin and they had the label out of the the violin and I just took a phone call and I had this with the ultraviolet on it and I just left it on my bench and a few moments later I smelt a sort of taste <laughs> <laughs> and at and at two inches away from this it, it was actually enough that over about 60 seconds it had started to started to light the customer's label on fire in front of them oh, no. oops <laughs> <laughs> That's not the most stupid thing I've done in the violin shape, but (laughs) I'm not going to tell you what is. But uh, yeah, no, these things are really, really important. I've got uh, infrared as well and infrared cameras. Uh, I can't tell you how useful it is to have an endoscope that works. Yeah. And uh, you know, there's there's just so much time and effort that you can that you can uh, get with those. I I had an instrument, and I won't say who certified it, but it was certified as a Daniel Parker. And in truth, if you look through their sound holes, you could see the signature in exactly the right place for a Daniel Parker. Unfortunately, the signature said John Sexton. Oh. Yeah. And it had uh, it was you know complete, being completely backed by the trade was one thing, and you know just you know being able to to do that. There's a lot that's written on instruments, and actually, again, you know we can be quite lazy. You know you can see something like a Paul Bailly, and you know it's a Paul Bailly, and you'll call it circa 1900, and all along there'll be a 1892 date just penciled in. Yeah, <laughs> and. And and that may or may not cause something really embarrassing with a customer that I wouldn't be able to talk about. <laughs> so what you keep saying is don't be lazy. Don't be lazy. Be systematic. There's yeah. uh, There are various things that huge book on uh, violin conservation has got these huge, the three-volume uh, thing by Tom Wilder. It's got these huge checklists. Learn how to take a violin from top to bottom because even if you don't have to to know what it is you're going to learn something yeah so that sounds like a must have book for the library that's a that's that's an important one but there's also yeah. these sort of lists which which go by you know and tell you to if you can tick off everything what are the blocks made out of what are the linings made out of everything like that you'll you'll find something eventually that you'll learn pretty quickly and then you'll get lazy like me <laughs> and regret it. Well, Ben, despite what you may say about yourself, it's always a delight. And I always learn something new when you're on. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ben. My pleasure. Brilliant. Next time you're traveling through the Twin Cities, you'd be as dull as a used fingerboard plane to miss visiting House of Note. Located in St. Louis Park, you'll find the people of House of Note taking care of players at every level from the beginner student to the Minnesota orchestra performer. House of Note has built their reputation over the years on being kind, fair, and honest. Pop in and you're likely to find Jeff picking out hairs for a bow rehair, 
Why nearby Lyle is getting the symmetry perfect on a cello neck set. You might even find Aaron carving a stellar bridge for a new violin setup, while Nick perfects the perfect fit of a soundpost patch. And Ty is putting the final polish on a new set of pegs that fit just so. If you can't visit these guys in person, check out houseofnote.com where you can commission a purple electric violin made by Lyle and other things, like their wide selection of bows and showroom instruments, or sign up for a rental instrument online. House of Note. By musicians, for musicians. Welcome back. Once again, we've got the one, the only Christopher Rooning. Thanks again for joining us. Again, it's wonderful to be here with you guys. Chris, tell us about your library. Yeah, so uh, I've devoted a lot of time and money and resources to building a photo library. And we're going back to my old mentor and friend, Robert Bine, who told me, hey, you know, you should really devote yourself, get yourself a photographer and take pictures of everything you see. And at that point, I, I was thinking to myself, well, there's so many things that I've passed through my hands that I haven't photographed. I guess I think I'm too late to do that. But uh, he says, no, 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 do it now, devote the money. And I, I swallowed hard because it was expensive, especially then, to get the, the camera equipment and get somebody in there to help me with photographs. And after some fits and starts, we finally we finally did. And thanks to Tucker, Tucker Densley, who has been my photographer all these years, you know, and then we move on to digital photography. We're taking great quality pictures. Nowadays, I think anybody could do it. You just have to have a very good setup. You take as good of quality pictures as you can. Um, digital cameras are are much cheaper than they used to be. And then just, um, I think it's good to hire somebody to process these pictures because you can't do everything. Um, you can't answer the phone, fill out your do all your bookkeeping jobs and repair violins and do this also. So it really helps to hire somebody, at least especially to do the, the processing of the film, uh, of, the, of, the, of the pictures. Tell me your thoughts on how having a photographic library like this can be helpful and where it could fall short. So the, the first purpose of a picture is to remind yourself of what something looked like. You can maybe remember sort of what it looked like, but to have the picture in front of you brings back your, brings back your memory. So if you see something, you think, ah, I think that might be a Maligari. And you can't find any really good pictures in, in the books. Um, you pull up the one that you really know, and then you, then you can check the details. And it reminds you of what it looked like. So that's the, that's the first purpose. But as you build this library, and by the way, I've accessed pictures, not just the ones I've taken, but ones my colleagues send me, or ones that I scan out of books or auction catalogs. And systematically, I've built this pretty large um, resource that when you put let's say 30 pictures of the same maker side by side, that brings you to a different level of cataloging where you can sort of sort the maker by period and date and put them in order. And the fakes really jump out once mm. you 
once you catalog things that way. That's the ultimate goal is your library is large enough that you can use it as a, as a resource to learn more about the maker than you otherwise would have known. Just talking about being analytical with uh, record keeping and stuff, what other types of records do you keep on instruments and bows as you're looking at them? So every violin that comes through has a, gets a inventory number, whether it's in my inventory or it's just a violin that passes by. And that, that instrument also with the inventory number gets a, a folder and inside the folder goes the pictures, goes any of my notes, goes a condition report. And if it's in the inventory, I'll put my appraisal in there. Maybe the invoice I, when I bought it and the invoice when I sold it, the certificate I might, might have written for it. So in one folder, every, every little bit of information that goes with that violin is in one place. And then I've got a database, which uh, that inventory number is important in building the database so that uh, each instrument has a unique number that helps you sort everything. So those folders go in, in, a, um, in a book shelf, let's say, and they're organized alphabetically. So starting with, let's say, Amati, working all the way through Zanoli. Um, all alphabetically, and then in each maker according to the inventory number. So when I want to find an instrument, it's quite easy to find that folder. I can pull it out and I can look at everything that I might need to know. Or if I want to study a certain maker, I'll have, you know, I can pull out all the Berganzis that I have in there and I can go through them and look at, I also put their dendrochronology um, reports in there, um, all the all the other all the other data that, that I can gather. Let's say if I've taken a back tracing or if I've got CT scans or if I've got um, whatever I have, they all go in that in that unique folder for each unique instrument. That is an incredible, incredible amount of work. And I have a lot of respect for how methodical that you have to be to achieve that. Thanks for Thanks for doing that for all of us. Yeah. <laughs> You're kind of like the fiddle FBI. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you use any type of special cameras or lights or tools like that to, when you're inspecting or um, studying an instrument? Uh, black light can be helpful sometimes. Um, I've, I haven't found, I, I know I need to get one of these interior cameras um, that work. I haven't found one that stays working for very long, so I don't tend to use them. I just go in there with a mirror and maybe a, a light. Teresio, back, uh, I think for an April Fool's joke, they uh, said that they'd created a technology where um, they could do on-the-spot attributions if you sent them a photo. Um, right. yeah. uh, and it did prove it to be an April Fool's joke, but you know there is rumor of a sort of technology that's budding like this. Um, what are your thoughts on this type of technology or is there another technology that you wish that we had? Well, all the tools are there for us to like study forms. Like you could take photographs of, let's say, let's start with cellos because they're, they're built on big forms and, and they're hard to build and, and most makers used one or two. So you could take pictures and superimpose them over each other pretty easily, which, you know, by the way, we do sometimes. Um, 
that's a technology that's easy to to use and you could do the same thing with let's say sound hole templates but um the problem is the people that are making the copies are basically following the same ideas so i don't think that helps you so much understand whether it's a fake del jesu or a real one unless if if you the, by the the ct scans with a rib structure do help you because he used more or less one form his entire career so if the blocks aren't lining up that's a that's a red flag uh, mm -hmm. so there's plenty of technology. I think that's over, you know, the Teresio uh, joke was kind of oversimplifying things, but that's the basic concept of what it's a bit more complicated than that, obviously, but still the, the idea is there. Yeah. I think that's, that covers a lot of the tools. Did we miss anything, Rosie? Just, uh, you know, has anyone built the time machine yet so that we can <laughs> go <laughs> see for ourselves who made it? You can't imagine how many times I've wondered the same thing. If we could just go back in time just to tell us if we were actually right or not. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate all the monumental effort that you put forward to uh, push our knowledge forward into the next set of hands. Thank you for what you do. We really appreciate you. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Chris. Guys, I just heard that Learning Trade Secrets has opened up a new class, September 11th through 16th. We've got none other than Sofia Vittori going to teach a class on Italian spirit varnish. And I've got Sofia with me now. Hi. Hey. Hi, Rosie. <laughs> I'm so happy to be here with you. Anything that's you. exciting? <laughs> this is super exciting. And I want to know all about the class that you're going to be teaching. Yeah, so this is going to be awesome, and we are going to um, talk about everything that regards varnishing, but also like from the preparation of the wood. So um, everybody will start with the white instrument, and we will go through like enchanting all the flames and sealing all the wood and making the nice ground, and then start and making and cooking also the all the recipes that we need to have with my special varnishing formula that I got from my grandfather. So it's going to be something really unique. And then we are going to do also some antiquing if somebody wants to do the antiquing or like, or just make a straight looking instrument. And then the polishing, the French polish. And so it's going to be a whole process to bring the instruments from the beginning to the end. Wonderful. Well, we are Americans here, so we do like our antiquing. So I appreciate you doing that. <laughs> I love antiquing too. <laughs> well, uh, I, I think that this is not to be missed. I have seen your work in person. You do gorgeous varnish work. So anybody who can take this should. And just a reminder again, that is September 11th through 16th, uh, Learning Trade Secrets up in Ashland, Ohio. You can sign up today by going to learningtradesecrets.com. Sophie, is there anything else you want to add? Yeah, so I would like to say that somebody is scared about spirit varnish from the experience that maybe we had at school. or But my way of doing the spirit varnish, it's a, a completely different way. So it's not it doesn't take like one month. That's why we can varnish an instrument in one week. 
And it's a little bit uh, um, a mix between oil and spirit varnish. So the way I'm using the spirit varnish, it's a little bit like using the oil varnish. But the good news is that it's super easy to cook. So I, I'm sure you will enjoy that if you will sign up. And I can't wait to see you there. Everyone, I'm so pleased to announce that we have Claire Givens with us coming from Minneapolis. Hi, Claire. Hi, Rosie. Uh, you are a well-known, influential voice in the field, active in the violin trade. Um, you are not only known by people inside, but uh, people who are more casual viewers have seen you on uh, Antiques Roadshow. So I, I'm happy to have you. Thanks, Rosie. You know, I think there's a huge advantage to just having been around for a long time. And I and I have that advantage. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we saw your library tour on Instagram that you gave. What was it to the VSA? Is that correct? Yeah, the Violent yeah. Society of America. And, and you've got quite a collection there. Can you tell us a bit about your collection and how you've built it over the years? I love books. I think you know that by uh, having seen that video and Brandon was the person that got that started. So, and I married somebody who loves books. And so even though uh, most of his books are now at home and we have another comparable library at home, um, we both have a common love of books and books uh, that allow us to reach into different aspects of our, of our world. So I don't have a lot of books on varnish and on trees and things in my library, but Andrew does. And um, we met in 1987 in Cremona at the Stradivari exhibit. And uh, then we were married in 89. And so uh, we've continued to build this library for the last 33 years. But my first library major collection purchase was from Thomas Wenberg, now known as Thomas Wilde. And oh, yeah. he loved books, and he had two complete Strad magazine runs, and he sold me one. Wow. And, and he also sold me a, a ton of other books. And this was during the time in the uh, mid-'80s when he was compiling the book on American violin makers. And, of course, he's a genius, and um, the book that he wrote on American Violin Makers has been a major source for, for many of us all these years. So I owe Thomas Winberg, who became wild when he married. That sounded odd, didn't it? But anyway, he uh, is now Thomas Wild, <laughs> and he is wild. So um, those were my, my first books uh, that I acquired were through, through him and his love of great books. Brandon, that's the book you're sending me, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. Goodness. Do you want to do a plug about how you have these books for sale? <laughs> well, I actually um, recently acquired all the remaining uh, Winbergs. There's about 190 of them. So um, just so you know, 190 Winbergs weigh about 1,300 pounds. And <laughs> I lifted those twice. So <laughs> if anyone needs a Winberg, let me know. <laughs> It is one of those. Books. It's an essential in everyone's library for sure. Yeah, it and has not been surpassed in terms of its contents. Well, Claire, uh, you actually great segue. So, what are some of the essential books that you use in your library regularly, um, just for all of your uses? 
I've thought about this a lot because I knew you were going to ask me this. <laughs> and I can't narrow it down to five, but I do have a list here. My go-to book right now, and that's changed in the last few years, is the Brompton book of Violin and Bowmakers by John Dilworth. And it has surpassed the Henley, which used to be my first go-to. So I try to build a context around a particular maker when they lived, who their influences were, and uh, get a sense of how prolific and important a maker they were during their lifetime. So now I go to the Brompton book. The nice thing about the Henley book was his writing. He's so, especially if he's comparing an English maker to a French maker, he's just um, so effusive in his love of English makers. And I find that interesting. And that has been cut from the Dilworth book. So sometimes I still go back to the Henley. But the yeah. Brompton book is, is incredible, I think. And the other thing about de developing a library is knowing your library and what each book can give you. So the, the coolest thing about the Brompton book is that list of photographs in the back. So you can look up a maker by its name, by his or her name, and you can see all the books that have pictures of that maker's work. So I think that's a really critical aspect of, of researching. Wow. All right, that's number one. Mm -hmm. And then I've got um, two bow books that I use a lot. And the one is Larche by Raffan and Mallant. And that has an unbelievable amount of detail in it and pictures, great pictures. I have no idea how one human being and plus Mallant, um, well, Mallant collected most of that data from what I understand, but also Raffan, how they put together all that detail in those pictures. It's an astounding book. Still expensive from what I understand, yeah. but essential. All right. The other one is the German Bowmakers book that Grunke and, and um, Hans Carl Schmidt worked on. And I think a couple of Zunterer um, for bow, German bows. That's my go to because of all the biographical information about who they worked with um, and, and great pictures. That is the interesting thing about those two books, Claire, um, is the it's the biographical information. Uh, you can read something about the maker and what I find is it actually sends you on a bit of a, you know, a rabbit chase to see, to see what they said, you know, go look at the maker who they worked for and then look who they learned from. And it's a really nice way to kind of thread your way through the information. I totally agree. Uh, you can go down a rabbit hole. Okay. So that person worked with so-and-so from Martha Kirken and, and what was their career like and where did they work and, and uh, who did they train with? And you're absolutely right. Yeah. All right, we're up to number three. Yeah. Now, number four is the three volumes of the Vaughn. Oh. I use the Vaughn a lot. Can, I don't, I'm not familiar with that. Can you spell that for me? V-A-N-N-E-S. Okay, thank you. And there's three volumes. There's two volumes that are printed together, and then there's a skinny little third volume that's the most current. But what's great about the Vaughn is that it has uh, the whole section on, on the brands, that can be found in instruments and the labels. So seeing copies of the labels, I think is really critical. Renee Vaughn. Renee Vaughn. Oh, she's getting up to go get it. <laughs> well, it's, it's, right he, it's right here. Dictionary, yeah. however one says that in French, Universal of Luthiers. Wonderful. Oh, is it the, um, is it the red one? Yeah. Yep. It's coming off Lovely. the shelf. 
Look at that hefty thing. Looks like a five pounder. Yeah, Renee Vaughn. Is that primarily on French makers, Claire? No, no, no. It's everybody. Okay, everybody. Great. Yeah. <laughs> Even Andrew Dipper's in there. Oh, wow. and that, that is the Andrew you were mentioning earlier. That's right. Yes. All right. <laughs> so uh, we're counting vests number four. And then five, I've got a list of about 10 different books here that might be in the category of number five. Oh, wow. I know. I, I do. I do love the British Violin book that the the British Violin Makers Association put out. Yeah, it gives you so much context about what was happening at a particular period of time, and I think it's really hard to know the English makers. I also think it's really critical to have good the good Stradivari books available. So if you're trying mm. to figure out what model a particular instrument is, to have the 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 Charles Beers book on. Um, the Stradivari exhibit from 1987 in Cremona or the Ashmolean exhibit. Those are two amazing resources, plus all the extra information. That sounds also like an amazing resource for someone who's learning how to make those copies. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Great resource. Um, And then there's the Nicolini book on violin making in Italy, the most recent um, publication of that that's in Italian and in English. His early early version was just in Italian, but it has uh, mostly 20th century makers. I consider that to be really, really useful when I'm trying to pin down a particular maker and when they work and where they worked and, again, what their influences were. I I love how this... uh top five list is actually like 20 bucks. I think it's fantastic. It's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I, can't, I can't, I can't reduce it. I tried. Yeah. Um, yeah that's yeah. great. I love it. I, I, I think the four volumes for, for Eric, from Eric Blatt are just critical to anyone's library who runs across an Italian violin made after 1880 um, or 1870. I think that, that he's done a remarkable job of the research. I wish he would come out with the Naples book, but that's another story, I think. Yeah. Um, but those four volumes are really critical to understanding Italian violin making. And then for German making, I really like the book Alte Geigen und Bogen. Really good color pictures, really good uh, biographical information. Yeah. And then there's the Hama book, which is black and white, but it's it's a two-volume study of all German makers. Yeah. That one's critical. There's two books that have just come out in the last few years that Bruce Babbitt um, spearheaded the project, the German bow and the British bow, both by the VSA. There's mm-hmm. not yeah. a lot of con- context in, in there about uh, biographies and, and uh, who and where, and but there's just good pictures of bows that we don't get to see very often. Yeah. And I know they were all vetted by, um, I think, wasn't it Jung Chin? Did the German books anyway, the German bow book? Yeah, Young and Bruce. Young and Bruce work together. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but those are no, those are really great, um, and they were all based on the exhibit or the exhibits that the VSA did. Right, we all run across a zillion hill bows in our careers, I would imagine, and just trying to figure out what's what and when, I think has always been difficult. When I started in business, it was secretive as to what the little brands under the under the hair on the tip plate meant. And I remember somebody 
hand writing out the list and just making me promise never to tell anybody else what yeah. all those all those little stamps on the tip plate meant. And then someone leaked it in a publication. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And so now we have this amazing book on the Hillbow by Milnes and Wilson, which spells yeah. it all out. It's fabulous. And then, of course, Tim Toff's book on, on the Hillmakers, beautifully documented. Uh, right. And so if you do run across a Hill violin, you can tell by the number and the, and the type of label and, and uh, whether it makes sense or it doesn't make sense. Well, I must be up to 12 now. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> that's a great list to at least give someone who's getting into this business a great starting point to build their library. Um, and I think, I mean, beyond that, do you have any recommendations for books that are more about maybe even just the instruments that walk into the average American violin shop every day? Well, the the three volumes, uh, two of which are useful, that, um, what's his name, Rick, Richter? Rick, um, hang on a second. Is it Earhart, maybe? Earhart, Earhart. Yeah, yeah Earhart. another set of books um, out right now. You know, I, I had them bound way back when. And they I was going to say, those look way better than mine, Claire. <laughs> right, and, 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 and I use them so much that they're falling apart. But um, Roy Earhart. I don't know if you can still get these or not. They're not in publication anymore that I know so of. Claire is handling just these huge tombs. They look like maybe 14 inches long uh, books right now. <laughs> Claire, those books are, um, those are all basically uh, excerpts from catalogs that Earhart collected, right? That's right. It's an amazing compendium of all the trade catalogs that he could get his hands on. When I go to the Antiques Roadshow, I see so many of these trade violins that I just bring, I always pack them because I need to tell people that just because the the back of their violin has beautiful inlaid decoration on it doesn't mean that it's valuable. So I pull out those catalog pages of fancy violins and I point it out that there's their violin and it sold for $3.40 in 1910. I would love to know a little bit more about your preparation to go. So you just mentioned having a lot of books you packed. Tell me a little bit more of that process of preparing to go. Well, I do do some research about the makers that are in that area. For instance, in Cincinnati, uh, James Reynolds Carlisle. And I don't bring many books just because they weigh a lot and they have a library there. And, um, they, they have the Wenberg, they have the Groves, they have a Henley, and um, most of the tables can access their publications online, but the violin industry cannot. So um, I do access their library and take the tables, the, the books to my table. And um, But I bring the Roy Earhart books, and um, I bring some tools. So I bring a flashlight because their lights are terrible, a really... Um, really strong LED light. And I bring one of those Benda lights for looking inside the instrument. Mm -hmm. And um, of course, a tape measure and a loop and a caliper and a black light, a portable black light. And then Andrew has uh, really good lenses that fit on his iPhone. So he can take a picture of a label, for instance. And there was amazing... 
uh, Hornsteiner violin that we found in Sacramento that had a label pasted to the inside of the middle rib on the base side that the owner had no idea was there. And the cameraman couldn't get a good picture of it. And they used, ended up using Andrew's picture of that label. So <laughs> the, the iPhone and a really good lens makes a huge difference uh, yeah. to our capacity to really grasp what it is that we're seeing. So Andrew Dipper, to add to his Renaissance man list, is also a photographer for Antiques Roadshow. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You mentioned tools. Uh, are there anything, is there anything that you use? I know Andrew and you are both quite innovative. Um, is there anything that you guys find yourselves using in your shop that maybe would take people by surprise when you're studying instruments or trying to research them? I think the use of that macro lens on the iPhone, Andrew can do just amazing work. He will take a picture of a, of a corner of an instrument or a scroll, and you can enlarge it and see all of the tool marks. Oh, wow. So I, I see expertise as, and you'll probably get into this in one session or another, as being a collaborative process. And I don't see that there's one person on earth that knows all the answers. And I see that even in the best of shops, they use each other. They bounce ideas off each other and they get input. So um, we certainly do that here. Uh, I talked to Andrew. Andrew has input. Our shop manager, Doug Lay, has input. He's got great eyes. And uh, we put all the pieces of the puzzle together. But having access to the, those macro pictures is incredible. And also, he can if you have a, a label that you really can't read, he can take a picture of it and enhance it. And uh, we've been able to figure out a number of labels and also signatures on the inside of an instrument that are hard to read. I'm gonna have to get one of those. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Claire Givens. You guys stay tuned for part three. We will have Claire on again to talk about putting it all together, making the call. Thanks, Claire. Thank you both very much. I love talking to you, you're great. This is this is this is this is and this is the coda. And with that, we close the book on this subject. <laughs> the subject of the resources and tools that we use for identification purposes. And I have to note that was the Henley book you had in front of that you. That was the Henley. I think it nice has heavy tone. I think the Henley has the best tone, Rosie. A good thump. Yes. Yes. Um <laughs> And I was just so you know, I was pulling from about the middle of it for those of you who are looking for that specific tone. Yeah. Yeah. Page. Well, I actually shouldn't be closing the book because now after listening and watching Claire in her library, I need to get in mine and try to figure out how to drive it. Yeah. Yeah. Did she give you any thoughts on where to go with your new collection of books? Well, first off is to get it on a bookshelf and get it organized to where I can maneuver through like she does and just grab whatever I'm looking for. So, so step one, not in boxes, not in boxes is the, okay. the best thing. Yeah. But no, it was lots of stuff. I tell you the thing that I was also interested in is what Chris said about investing in his photo library and just his yes. archive. Um, yes. And basically by the recommendation of Bob Bine, who was also one of the great minds of the violin trade, you know? I am so impressed with 
the work that he's doing that not only uh, puts forward his shop, but it also for the continuation of knowledge of all of us. Yeah. He is doing this work. It's fantastic. He's doing a great service for sure. And then we also learned not to set labels on fire. We did. (laughs) It was not good. Not good. So I have a little bit of bonus content for you. Oh. I have not listened to this, but I gave Chris Jacoby an assignment while he's on a hiatus. And that was write a song about the tools of the trade, tools and resources. So wait, so he did it? it. Yeah. (laughs) That's amazing. We're going to listen to it for the first time right now. We are not held responsible for what is about to be played on air. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to do it. I'm pressing the button. Hello, and welcome to my TED Talk. I was doing snorkel shots. Why do we start an identification archive to police you? Keep a little black book on my PDA. Full of fiddles and bows that have come my way You know it started with slides from my father's shop Now it's all digitized and I just can't stop I've stood in Wow. <laughs> that boy's got some pipes. <laughs> I like how he pronounced Italian. 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 <laughs> Can I get some Italian dressing? I love it. Good job, Chris. All right. All right. What do we got for, for part three of this insane journey that we're on? Like we said in the last episode, I think we could go for seven episodes or 10 episodes, but we do literally have to close the book on this. So we are going to explore the play-by-play when someone hands Chris Rooning a violin, hands Claire Givens a violin, and what are the steps that they take from seeing the violin to then at the end saying, yes, I know what this is, or hand it back and say, I'm sorry, I don't. What happens in between? Yeah. How do you make that call? Game day play by play. Yeah. So guys, stay tuned next month and we will continue on this journey and we will all be experts when this is done. Absolutely. I feel so much more expertly now. (laughs) Guys out there, stay awake. You can do it. Thanks for being homo sapiens. And don't forget your banana shirts. OMO is an all-Luthier podcast, produced by Rosie DeLoach, Chris Jacoby, and Jerry Lynn. The show is edited by Jason Peoples, music by Invoke Sound. If you enjoy our show, you can help us out by leaving an iTunes review or becoming a Patreon member at patreon.com omopod, where you can get your very own OMO swag. We'd love to hear from you. 
So reach out to us at mail at omopod.com or call the Omo phone at 240-686-5345. Thanks for listening.